Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. California Democrats are looking into reforming the recall process less than 24 hours after Governor Gavin Newsom survived an effort to remove him from office. KQED's Katie Orr has that story. Legislative leaders wasted no time announcing their intentions after Newsom easily defeated the recall attempt against him. Senate Elections Chair Steve Glazer says voters want to be able to hold leaders accountable. But they don't want this partisan manipulation where a small minority can force an election and have a candidate prevail with less than a majority vote. That is anti-democratic. Both the Senate and the Assembly will hold hearings in the coming months to explore possible reforms. Those could include increasing the number of signatures needed to qualify a recall for the ballot. Many of the proposed changes would need to be approved by California voters. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. Governor Newsom has declined to say if he will approve or deny a parole request for Sirhan Sirhan, who's been imprisoned since 1969 for the murder of Robert F. Kennedy. Last month, a two-person parole board panel recommended that Sirhan, who is now 77, be released. Newsom at a press conference yesterday said it wouldn't be appropriate for him to comment yet since the request hasn't reached his office. But the governor, who quoted Kennedy Tuesday night after surviving the recall attempt, said his admiration for the late senator is no secret. You go in my home office, uh, you'll see half dozen Bobby Kennedy photos on the wall, most precious one being of my father and Bobby Kennedy signed to my mother. The parole recommendation is under legal review. If it survives that, the full parole board would vote on it before sending it to the governor. Well, Governor Newsom has just less than a month until October 10th to decide whether to sign a bill that softens production quotas for warehouse workers. AB 701 is widely seen as targeted at Amazon, which runs more than 60 warehouses across California. But that's not all, as KQED's Rachel Myro reports from our Silicon Valley desk. Behind Amazon's big yellow place your order button is a vast network of warehouses filled with close to a million logistics employees across the country, 40,000 in the Inland Empire alone. But if the tech-obsessed retailer is famous for using robots, sensors, and software to maximize productivity, it's also infamous for driving warehouse workers to the exit doors with repetitive stress injuries and, well, stress. How did you come up with this rate? Was it based on what your understanding of what the human body can do? Or is it based on what you think that you need to get through in order to make a profit this quarter? 
That's Shaher Yerkazji, head of the Warehouse Worker Resource Center in Ontario. San Bernardino and Riverside counties together serve as the cargo throughput for much of America west of Chicago. Trucks and trains move what comes through the ports of L.A. and Long Beach to the Inland Empire, where imported goods are redistributed in warehouses onto long-haul trucks for transportation east. Amazon's rivals, like Walmart and Home Depot, are nipping at the tech titan's heels, eager to adopt its algorithmically driven strategies to maximize productivity. It's not that those companies can't afford to do the right thing. It's that they figured out what they can get away with. And if they're not held accountable, that's what they'll continue to do. Cosgy sees AB 701 as a compromise between union organizers and big business. Amazon declined to comment on the legislation, but a spokeswoman wrote the company abides by state and federal laws, including paid breaks and ready access to toilet facilities. What's sitting on Governor Newsom's desk would prohibit the kinds of company policies like ever-shifting production quotas or time-off task penalties that psychologically pressure workers to forego their state-mandated breaks or wait till their shift is over to use the bathroom. The problem with existing law is that, I mean, in general, in California and nationwide, is that it, it just hasn't kept up with the state of technological change. Beth Catellius is research director at the University of Illinois at Chicago's Center for Urban Economic Development. She takes particular interest in the way the bill the first of its kind in the nation, requires warehouse operators to disclose quotas and work speed metrics to employees and government agencies. Right now, we just it's kind of a black box. And I think the case of Amazon offers us pretty ample evidence that we can't just rely on companies to weigh these costs and benefits and act in the interest of workers. Someone else has to do that, and that is traditionally what government's role has been. The question above and beyond whether the governor signs AB 701 is how committed California regulators are to that oversight role. With more than 200,000 people in the state working in warehouses, it's not a small question. For The California Report, I'm Rachel Myro. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 
Fire crews are ramping up the battle against the so-called KNP complex fire threatening Sequoia National Park. So far, it's burned 9,000 acres with no containment. The fire is moving closer to an iconic grove of giant sequoias, some of which are more than 2,000 years old. With more, here's the California Report's Alex Hall. The KNP complex is made up of two fires that are burning in Sequoia National Park in the Sierra Nevada. One of the fires is getting dangerously close to a famous grove of giant sequoias called the Giant Forest. It's home to the General Sherman tree, the largest tree on the planet by volume. Fire Information Officer Rebecca Patterson says as the fire moves closer, crews are preparing the trees in the same way they might protect homes or other buildings, by clearing vegetation and in some cases even wrapping their trunks in aluminum material that could protect them if the fire gets too close. We don't want to lose sight of the fact that the sequoias are literally the reason that these public lands were established, and uh, they are absolutely priceless and irreplaceable within many human lifetimes. The fires that make up the KNP complex, the Colony and Paradise fires, were ignited by lightning last week. The park has since been closed, and employees who live there have been evacuated. For the California Report, I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. Most of California's national forests are reopening today after being closed for weeks due to fire concerns. Late last month, the U.S. Forest Service announced the statewide closure of federal lands, citing record-breaking conditions that were causing extreme fire behavior. Five forests will remain closed due to continuing fire danger. That includes the El Dorado National Forest, where the Caldor Fire is burning. That'll stay off limits through at least the end of this month. The Los Padres, Angeles, San Bernardino, and Cleveland National Forests in Southern California will also remain closed until next week on the 22nd. Turning to the pandemic, L.A. County is the latest in the state with plans to require proof of vaccination for COVID-19 for some indoor businesses. A new health order is expected to be issued tomorrow, requiring that proof at indoor bars, wineries, breweries, nightclubs and lounges. Here's County Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer speaking to the Board of Supervisors yesterday about why those businesses are being required to check for proof when it's only being strongly recommended at restaurants. The bars, lounges and nightclubs are just much higher risk because of the activities that that people are engaging in. Uh, Our inspectors say for the most part, um, all of the patrons, all of the customers are there without a mask on. I mean, mostly because they have a drink in hand. They're walking around uh, and uh, there's a lot of dancing. Uh, There's a lot of close contact with lots and lots of people. All guests and employees at those businesses will be required to have at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine by October 7th and a second dose a month later. Also starting on the 7th, outdoor mega events with more than 10,000 people in attendance will require proof of vaccination or a recent negative COVID test taken within 72 hours. This will also apply to theme parks like Universal Studios in Hollywood and Six Flags Magic Mountain. As vaccine mandates take hold around the state, some Californians are seeking exemptions on religious grounds. But verifying claims related to these exemptions involves somewhat murky legal territory. Dorit Rice is a law professor at UC Hastings. She studies vaccine law and policy. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So what does a religious exemption actually mean? Define that for us. 
A religious exemption is when a worker is claiming they cannot follow a workplace uh, rule because it conflicts with a sincerely held religious belief. The claim is that the employer is asking them to choose between their commitment to God or their conscience and following the rule. So do these exemptions mean specifically religious beliefs or can it also include personal beliefs? Generally speaking, the right is to a if if there is a right and that's a little complicated to a religious exemption not to a personal belief exemption some areas are on the borderline so for example there's conflicting precedent on whether being a vegan would qualify as a religious exemption but i think vaccines are unsafe doesn't qualify it has to be connected to religion mhm how does one prove that exactly. I mean, we have in Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti saying that the city will not tolerate abuse of these exemptions. But how hard is it from a legal perspective to prove, for example, that someone is lying? It is extremely hard. The problem is that the standard is the personal belief of the believer, not showing that you belong to a religion that prohibits you from vaccinating. The moment the focus is on a personal belief, and the terms gets tricky because it's a personal belief in religion the moment the focus is on the person's view you have to show whether the person is sincere or not and that gets you into a very murky area so for example you can't just say we will only give this to people who can bring a letter from a religious leader saying they have an objection because it's not about whether you belong to a church that prohibits vaccines or to a synagogue that prohibits vaccine uh, you can't say Two years ago, you got the MMR, so I'm assuming you're lying because people change their views. So there's a lot of things employers can't do, but there's also things that they can do. What's your take on the disparities from one group of churches uh, to the next when it comes to doling out these exemptions? We've seen mega churches that have fought Governor Newsom's health orders, and then on the other hand, in a place like San Diego, you have the Catholic diocese there refusing to take part in these religious vaccine exemptions. A church that's willing to grant an exemption to people without closely examining whether they are uh, sincerely religiously against vaccine is participating in something that's basically abusive or at least uh, dishonest. If a church is giving a letter to someone reaffirming, yes, I've talked to this person, they have a sincerely held religious belief against vaccine. After talking to the person and affirming that, they're just uh, giving testimony to something that is. But wholesale exemptions are basically an abuse. So, Professor, looking at this broadly, what does this mean from a policy perspective? If you have different organizations approaching this issue differently, what does that mean for California's ability to move on from the pandemic and get people vaccinated? Abuse of religious exemptions can really interfere with California's efforts to stop the pandemic. We adopted the mandate because rate of vaccines were not high enough to stop COVID-19 to prevent deaths and harms. If we have widespread abuse of religious exemption, the rates will stay too low which means that stopping abuse of religious exemption is really important. And there are some things employers can do, including asking hard questions from people submitting religious exemption and seeing whether these people can give answers that show that the exemption is in fact sincere. 
All right. Well, very interesting. A debate worth watching as we go forward. Dorit Rice, law professor at UC Hastings, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. And that is the California Report for this Thursday, September 16th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you for listening. Support for the California Report comes from Blue Shield of California, rebuilding the future of health care with every Californian in mind, from quality and equitable care to not-for-profit values. Learn more at news.blueshieldca.com. Paint Care. Now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.